This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. I'm Nick Levitt, work at UK Coaching. And Andy Bradshaw from UK Coaching, as one of the senior coach developers, uh, is joining us as well. And then we've got two guests on today. Uh, Georgia, who is a, uh, a diving background. And Georgia can introduce herself and tell, her, tell us a little bit about herself as well. Um, and Jerry Barton in there as well, whose hair is about four times longer now in reality. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> it's lovely now. Uh, that, that is picture. And it's only going to get bigger. Uh, so uh, we've got Jerry with us as well. So the plan for the day really is we're just going to get into talking about how people have moved from being uh, an elite athlete, elite coach, depending on um, what you might call yourselves in kind of your own sport, how you've made that shift across into where you are now, what that looks like, um, the process that you went through, how easy, hard, difficult, etc., and then get into some of the bit about coaching and some of your coaching practices and your behaviours and those kind of things as well. Um, well so mate. We're going to throw it straight in. Um, <laughs> and this is this is this is the wonderful work. And I wouldn't have <laughs> good spot, Joe. I didn't see him there. Uh, so I get it all wonderful... the time. They always sneaking in. I had one climber through the window. Uh, the last time I done this one, we little, little like climbed on the sofa and then was peering in the window. <laughs> so yeah, this is uh, this is where definitely I need to lock him in the garage. There, so that's secretary <laughs> and like BBC class Monday. there. Good spot. Um, so yeah. So there we go. Callum is a bonus guest for the day. I'm sure he'll probably reappear as well, because hey, that's that's homeschooling with a five-year-old now. Um, yeah. Right. So let's crack on then. Um, so Georgia, you know, you're, you're probably less well known. So tell us a little about you and the story and kind of, well, I guess how you've ended up now being part of this conversation. Um, yeah, so I'm from uh, diving. I originally started out in gymnastics um, and I started diving when I was 12, so a little bit late to the sport. Um, and I did a talent transfer. Uh, so I ended up leaving school and training full time. I was a member of the Great Britain team, uh, so I competed internationally. Um, I competed the three metre springboard and then I had a few knee operations. Um, couldn't do that event anymore, so I had to learn to dive on the 10 metre platform. So same sport, but in fact, it was actually quite like learning a whole different sport. Um, and I did that the last few years of my career, and I retired a year ago um, at the age of 22 um, and went straight into coaching from there. I coached alongside the last few years of me diving. So I trained in the day and then coaching the evenings. And then, yeah, I retired last year and moved over to coaching full time. Wow, retiring at 22. That's. Um... I know diving's got quite a young um, lifespan, much younger than most of the sports. So yeah, now, I was actually one of the oldest in the in the event that I did at the age of 22. So. Wow, oldest at 22. Joey, the kind of the short version of your transition and movement. Uh, uh, I played obviously from leaving school. I went into a YTS. Um, well, I wasn't really YTS. I was more non-contract. I wasn't good enough to get a YTS, actually, as a 17-year-old. So City took a chance on me, gave me a six-month non-contract. And then uh, six months after that, 
still very small, still unsure about me, took another chance um, and then then told me I was being released at the end of that six month period. And luckily for me, somebody seen something in my attitude or the, my desire to be a player, gave me a contract and um, then forged my way into the first team. Obviously, my career was um, drawn to an end through obviously gambling. You know, I got an 18 month ban from the FA, reduced to nine on appeal. Uh, and I was going to go back and play uh, for Sean Dyche again, hopefully at Burnley after after the ban. But about three months before the ban was up, I got a phone call asking would I interview uh, for the head coach's uh, position at, at Fleetwood Town. And initially I was still, you know, one single track mind about coming back and playing. And albeit I, I'd always wanted to coach, I always felt um, it, it would be something that I'd enjoy, something that would appeal to me. Um, you know, that kind of learning process and, and, and be, being a student of the game long after uh, you, weren't al- you, you weren't allowed to kind of play the game either via your body or in my case, by an FA ban. And, and, and I, I sat down and thought about it and then thought, yeah, this is something that um, I, I really want to have a go at. And I think something I, I think I can develop uh, the next phase of my uh, professional uh, journey in and as I say, 18 months, 19 months into it now, um, you know, you're just starting to find your feet a little bit and you're just starting to kind of understand what what, what the role um, of head coach w- within a uh, professional football club uh, really, really is. And I suppose the next whatever period it is that you stay in or you're fortunate enough to stay in that role, um, it's a job that certainly uh, taught me things I never, ever thought would be uh, needed in, in, in this profession. So, real, real eye-opener. Andy, you're on mute, mate. Okay. Thanks, Joey. Um, the, just a question to both of you. So, I'll come back to Georgia first, um, because your your sort of journey time is about the same, sort of 12 months, 18 months in, into your coaching um, sort of new role. How did, so Georgia first, how did you plan for your change? What was the process you went through? And also, if you can just pick up on what what support did you get? How did you what? Who did you look for? Who did you talk to? So there's almost a how did you plan for it, and then what support did you get? And then we can come to Joey with the same question. Um, yeah. So as I said, I, I did coach. Um, I started coaching quite a few years ago. As soon as I, you were old enough to do the coaching um, qualifications at 16, but whilst I was training, but more just for money, I wasn't a funded athlete. Um, but wanted to train full-time and was kind of on the cusp of being a GB athlete, but not a priority athlete. Um, so ultimately, I needed the money. Um, and as I, you know, as the more I coached, the more I fell in love with it. And towards the end, I did have quite a lot of injuries um, throughout my diary. I was fairly unlucky. Um, and the more period of time I'd have injured, the more time I spent coaching. Um, I got a group of athletes that I became attached to. Um, so it became more than just a bit on the side. Um, money-wise, it became you now I became invested, and it got to the point where, yeah, I was still competing and probably had the most successful year I'd ever had um, two years ago, coming away with a silver national medal um, and back on the GB team after so long with being so injured. But it also came at a point where, okay, I've had this year. Am I going to go to the Olympics? No. Um, so I wanted to kind of end on a high. Me training was no longer as fun. Um, I did really enjoy coaching and it was just about making sure that I didn't go to the point where I fell out of love with the sport that I potentially wanted to spend, 
you know, a very long time working it. Um, and that was close to happening. Um, training became really quite hard. So, and then with that, coaching came quite hard. I didn't want to do anything to do with the sport. Um, so it was about picking the right time in what would give me the most happiness further down in life. So maybe I did cut my career a little bit short, a little bit early, but now there's no looking back. But at the time, it was a really, really hard decision. It was, you know, you spent your entire life training um, this sport and everyone's so invested in you. Families put so much time and so much effort in. And for me, I felt like if I, if I finish now, no one will ever be proud of anything I ever do again. How can, how can anyone be proud of you when you, you work this hard and compete like this? You know, nothing will ever match that. And for me, that was the biggest thing in my head. Um, not so much, you know, I really want to coach, but what everyone would think. I mean, also, I was wrong. I couldn't be more wrong, but at the time, that's how it felt. It was quite a scary leap. Um, but yeah, now I couldn't be happier. Yeah, that, that moving out of a role that you've played so long in and then moving into a different role, there is a, there's a whole load of uncertainty there. Jerry, just listening to Georgia, um, uh, any connections there with, with your story? Anything that sort of resonated with you? And, and how did you plan for your transition? Well, well I didn't really, put, as I was saying to before, I, I, I wouldn't say it was as much a plan. I mean, um, anybody who's probably seen me speak over the years or, or read any uh, press interviews, you know, I'm not really short of self-confidence, um, bordering on probably arrogance in, in many, many regards. And certainly when it becomes... Uh, about my own pathway and, and, and what I um, what I am and what I'm not capable of. I mean, you know, as I said to you earlier, um, multiple times upon the road to becoming a professional footballer, I was I was behest with setbacks. People saying you're not good enough, not big enough, all these manner of things, and you you, you have to formulate a, a, an almost singular pursuit, a, a one track mind of everybody else on the planet's wrong. I'm going to uh, overcome this because if I'd have spent time listening to, to other people, um, most of those uh, snippets of, of, of information uh, gathered off them was about how the task I was about to uh, take on was, was impossible for somebody with uh, my skill set. So obviously that's a difficult thing because later on in life that becomes um, a deeply ingrained ha habit for good and for bad. Um, so you, you tend not to listen to most of the advice you are given, because um, usually for me, and certainly in the in the profession I was in, um, it was it was negative. It was it was stuff that I didn't think was beneficial for me as a as a as a young person, as a young player. And then, you know, the reality check kind of comes that all players, all participants, at some point, you know, you can see that you know the end is is kind of nigh and. I'd seen so many good players, great players I'd played alongside and play with stay at um, the party too long. You know, they, 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 they had tried to get that little bit more out or one more season or, and, and it ended up being um, a disaster in, in many, many regards. And in, and in some players' cases, really tainted the back end of the career. So, you know, when I got the FA ban, um, you know, you, you, you kind of at that junction to say, okay, do I want to, have a year out of the game at, at Premier League level, which is, is is very, very difficult, certainly once you're north of 30, which I was, uh, to get back in amongst, you know, elite-level athletes, elite-level players from all, all across the globe. And I was confident I could do it. I didn't know um, 
at what level I would come back in, albeit I knew I could get back and maybe play, you know, certainly championship. Um, I probably wouldn't have dipped down below that because of the career I'd added to that point. But I, I was hopeful and, and confident internally that I could have um, got back in Daishi's side of Burnley and certainly uh, impacted, even if it wasn't in a starting position that had gone out, it, certainly in a, in a kind of squad capacity. And and that was appealing for lots of reasons, as Georgia said there, you know, the financial aspect of it, even though you've had a, a, a good career, you know, you're still looking at it going, OK, these might be your last one, two, three, four paydays. And then as a footballer, 35, 36, 37, 38, uh, you, you know, you're, you're back into kind of civilian life um, and, you know, you're retired in effect from, 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 your, from your profession. Um, so I weighed that up and I knew that by going down the coaching pathway, I mean, you know, I, I probably could have earned 20, 30, 40,000 pounds a week at, at Burnley at that stage. And I knew I was taking a, a job on, you know, £2,000 a week at, at Fleetwood. Um, and I knew there'd be some short-term pain in terms of, you know, the finances attached to that. But it was an opportunity for me to, you know, even being honest, I felt my best days as a player would be behind me. I've obviously, you know, worked out that, you know, you, you're kind of going back to do what you've already done, you know, Keep Burnley in, 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 in the Premier League and and uh, protect the, the the season we'd had uh, in winning the championship the season before. So it was all stuff I'd all already done in my career, and it wasn't that appealing to me as a competitive yeah. person. So uh, you know the financial side of it is difficult to walk from because you know everybody's in a different financial situation. I was fortunate that I didn't have that as my sole. Um, you know, priority that I didn't have to take care of my family, pay a mortgage, put my kids through school, all the all the things that you know all coaches have got kind of uh, in the background. So I was in a fortunate position. Um, I'd had the year ban, so in essence, I'd had a year without football. I was working for Talk Sport at that time, so I'd lost the day-to-day -day connection with the players, which I think lots of ex-players or participants struggle with that kind of banter, teamship, camaraderie. I'd naturally lost that with the band. So for me to take a step into the coaching world, I'd kind of already broken off that support mm. network from, from fellow did, players. So did you also kind of reframe yourself to be to be in a coach's mindset as opposed to being a player? Or do you think that timeout kind of made that a bit easier anyway? Well, a lot of my problems as a player came from what I believe to to be um coaching issues you know I would always mm. challenge the coaches I always wanted to know why am I doing something if you could provide me with the why I'd pretty much do anything but a lot of the coaches I had problems with were you know you might see a Neil Warnocks and stuff when you would ask them why you were doing something and he had absolutely no idea it was just because it'd been done before and they were very much from that old school managers run a football club mindset and um, obviously the modern game and certainly the game that Neil Warnock had coached in terms of predominantly promotions from champ to prem and then relegation following the next year. I mm. was already ahead of that level because I was already in the Premier League comfortably staying in there. I think, you know, so so when he came with these ideas, which to me were outdated, there was instantly going to be conflict. Plus, I'd always known I was going to be a coach. I mean, I don't know where it came from, but I remember being, you know, a, an, an obsessed football fan, like, you know, or whatever sport you're into as a kid. For me, it was football. And every hour God sends, 
I wanted to do football related stuff. So obviously, um, you know, I, I remember playing on like Championship Manager when I was a kid. And I think everyone was brilliant on Championship Manager. But I always just remember thinking, this is something I want to do. Coach, manage, be part of a group, watch other people get better. I mean, I used to take the school football team at 14 because our school teacher, Mr. Lally, was more a short tennis and kind of uh, middle distance running man. He wasn't really a football man. So he, 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 I naturally, with my football knowledge, you saved him anyway at 14. So I used to pick the team, put on most of the coaching for the team from the stuff I was getting at Everton as a, as a young uh, schoolboy footballer. And I, I think my coaching uh, obsession kind of started then. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, it, yeah. I was naturally looking. I think, you know, you, 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 you're a 34, 35-year-old player. And, and, and I honestly believe, you know, I was influenced by some of the great coaches in the world. I mean, you know, at that time, there was, there was a, a change of the guard as, as I was a player. We kind of went from a big drinking culture and the manager runs the whole football club when I first broke through. And I think back to Kevin Keegan at City, Joe Royal at Man City. Um, and it changed to a head coach and a um, sports science and nutrition and, and the drinking kind of um, being a bit of a taboo subject among, you know, the, the, the professional ranks, mainly because of the athletic profile of, of the players at the top level. You know, the, the players became very much their own brand, very much their own businesses. There was fortunes to be made and, and, and rightly the players went into a very, very much um, more co professional capacity. Um, and mm. and that meant the whole coaching regime, management structure, all had to change to follow uh, suit. So yeah, yeah. I was I was fortunate enough to live through that um, that changing. You know, when I was a young pro at Man City, there was still a drinking club on a Tuesday and on a Saturday after the game, and and gradually seeing that uh, change over to a very very much you know professional lad taking protein shakes, doing foam rollers, everything you know that that they do now. Um, yeah. to give themselves the best chance athletically. Joe, just picking up on one of the things you mentioned earlier about um, the loss, just switching over to, to Georgia for a second. You, Joe, you mentioned the fact that uh, his natural break, um, sort of almost sort of the break from the banter, was actually helped in the transition into coaching. Georgia, how did you find, did you find any sense of loss in terms of moving away from being a performer and being a coach? How, what did that feel like for you? Um. Yeah, more so before the last few weeks when I was basically getting close to making the final decision, I felt, you know, incredibly lonely. And I, that's kind of what drew me to make the decision. I'd be just driving and how, no, I'd just burst in tears because you have this overwhelming feeling that, you know, you'll never, no one will ever be proud of you again. And no, this is just how I felt in my head. And that feeling of performing and getting the adrenaline and the satisfaction of that, nothing would ever be able to replicate that again. How could coaching possibly um, replicate that and then I went to a competition with my athletes and felt probably more nervous and more satisfaction and more pride than I've ever felt you know when it was myself they learning in the dive you know of an incredible feeling than anything that I ever did myself but it was it was hard I, I went from being everyone's friend um, on poolside and someone that was probably a bit of a goon like always messing around and laughing and joking to someone that had to stand there and you know Kind of tell my teammates what to do that was that was quite hard and they reacted better to it than i did i felt quite embarrassed for quite a long time standing there thinking i shouldn't be telling them this um where in actual fact they showed me nothing but respect the whole time 
and they were they were probably better at switching from it than I were, which made it much easier for me. Um, but I did have not with the younger athletes, but the older athletes, whenever I was asked to step in um, and work with those, I did find it quite hard for quite some time. You know, everything I said, I really, really overthought. I wanted them to think that I knew what I was talking about, even though we all know the sport inside out. Um, so you know, it, it was quite hard, um, but more so from me, everyone else made it really, really easy. But I, in, in my head, I painted a completely different picture to how the reality turned out to be. And in, in your head at the moment, are you Georgia the ex-diver or Georgia the coach? Uh, I think I'll always be Georgia the ex-diver, um, but I am definitely getting much more used to being Georgia the coach now. Joey, just those things, the, the loss and the transitioning from Joey the player to, to Joey the manager, head coach, how, how does that feel for you? As I say, I think the fact that I was banned made it easier because I had a, a, a nine-month ban to negate. So it didn't matter what I wanted to, to kind of do. It was a decision that was made for me. There was there was no football. So so it was it was easier for me to stop. I think what George is saying there, because she's gone from competing and then into the coaching and there's not been a, a huge gap in between it, it is, um, you know, you've still got friends in the changing room. It, uh, the analogy for me would be going, getting the ban and then going back into that dressing room as a coach. I mean, it would have been really, really difficult because you obviously bond with the players on a social side. And, you know, when the manager's being the manager sometimes, you know, and it, you know, you you have a, a shared kinship about uh, some of the managers or coaches' decisions. So to then go back in with people you've been in the trenches with, I think, and, and, and coach them and not... Um, lose any credibility I think would be enormously difficult um so how would you have done do that, that how do you reckon you would have approached that I think it's that? tough in football I think I, I mean the only one I ever seen do it was Stuart Pierce. I mean Pierce, he went from playing with us um to reserve team manager to manager losing his job caretaker manager and then good results got him the job and then he, he was great. He didn't really change up until he got the manager's job. And then when he got the manager's job, he, he made all these changes to himself as a person. And then it didn't align with the person that, that we'd help get the job as the caretaker. You know, he, he decided mm. once he got the job, he was going to be the manager he wanted to be, which I didn't feel was, was natural to the personality we'd known for two years before. So instantly with, with our, with our dressing room, the core of the dressing room, there was a, Who's this fella? You know, it was it, it it didn't align with the person we knew. So George's position there, I can imagine, to be um, incredibly difficult to because as a coach, um, I, I remember see, uh, speaking to Pep Guardiola. And it, you know, he he was saying, you know, his role within Manchester City is is pretty much to tell the players what nobody else wants to tell them. Um, you know, they've got agents and directors and fans, and they all want to tell the players certain things and mainly things that are good and beneficial and he says you know I have to be the one to come in and tell them the truth and sometimes they, they don't like the truth um, and, and telling someone the truth when you're friends with them um, mm. and, and oh. you've, you've competed with them and, and you've socialised with them I can imagine it is really really difficult I, I was fortunate that you know when it came to Fleetwood I didn't really know many of the players you know and not played with them and I did find some issues with players I brought in. You know, Dean Marnie didn't really work out and I played with Dean at Burnley. And that, that, the fact that we were friendship 
you know, teammates made it even more difficult to to overcome them problems. For me, it was a lot easier working with people I'd never met before because it was it was um, they were a lot more receptive to, to 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 the things that you would offer them in in terms of adding value to their own careers. Georgia, if you so, are you now coaching divers that you've worked with and competed against? Um, so I, I coach a younger age bracket to anyone that I trained with. Um, but diving is an incredibly small sport on the grand scheme of things, and it's a very small community. And you know, the kids that I now coach saw me train um, every day, and also the divers that I did grow up training with, I do quite regularly work with them um, and coach them or assist um, on their sessions. And the same thing when I go on camps or to other competitions. It's, everyone knows everyone it's a very very small community um so yeah they they'll have seen me grow up over the last few years particularly the kids that i coach now that'll be in the club um four or five years um so yeah they'll have seen that transition themselves uh, and this is probably interesting for both of you certainly now so the level that you're uh you're coaching at and your you as a diver are a much better diver than those kids are so kind of how do you how do you deal with the fact that you know you you might recognize that they're not going to be as talented as you and therefore how do you manage those frustrations and then probably the same you know as a player you could probably get in that fleetwood team still so again how do you kind of manage that if you're better than they might be as well so what what's how do you deal with that georgia um, well, the divers that I coach are much younger, um, but they are definitely incredibly talented. But what I did find when I first started off coaching was that I had very, very high expectations um, and yeah. probably didn't empathise well enough if, if they couldn't do it or if they didn't understand something. And it took me quite a long time to, A, you know, chill out. Um, I don't think I should have, I don't think, I, I don't agree with lowering my expectations. I think, you know, that then the bar's set high. I don't think that's a bad thing, but how I manage it, you know, if they're not quite getting there, what am I doing to help them? Um, and I hope, you know, I hope they all grow up to be more successful than the athlete that I was and everything that, you know, I did do a lot of things right. I did work hard, but also the things that I didn't do right. Um, you know, it's about steering them to make sure that they don't do the same thing. Um, and ultimately, I want them to achieve more than I ever achieved, which, which I hope that they can do. Sure, Joe, how do you manage that battle? Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, it's a, um, it, it's a, it's a difficult situation because obviously, you know, you, you're trying to leave yourself as a player at the door. You know, you, I, I walked in, and you can imagine with my reputation and all the things and comments and stuff that's been written about me over the years, you walk into most uh places and people already have a preconceived idea of you so fortunately for me the way the media have always portrayed me I, I, it's quite easy for me to go in the room and people go oh hang on a minute this doesn't make sense this this person yeah, doesn't yeah, make sense with the person yeah it, it always helps because you know most of the time people underestimate you so you know usually when i can string a sentence together and i don't beat anybody up within the first five minutes um, people realise that the person, that the boogeyman they read about in the newspapers isn't necessarily the person who's in the room with them. So going into Fleetwood, obviously, um, you know, you, I, I'd got the job before the end of the season, but because my band wasn't over, uh, the players went away for the summer and, and I wasn't able to go into a football club in, in that capacity because I was still negating the band. So 
everything was done at arm's length and via, via intermediate, you know, intermediaries for 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 the fact that um, you know the players needed information to de- be delivered to them. You know, they were going to go away in an off-season program and be expected to come back in in a certain uh, physical uh, capacity that that we could then mould them going into the season. So not being able to directly communicate with the players or coaching staff makes that maybe really difficult. But anyway, we, we were creative with it. We found some uh, good ways of, of of getting the information across. And and as is, is the norm, you know, you hear the, the rumblings, the kind of egos within any team, any sport that, well, who does he think he is? We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And it was all, thankfully, it was all bravado and bluster. And it was, you know, people being frustrated with what had gone before. And, and, and when we turned up for pre-season, we had, um, you know, pretty much buy-in across the board for, for, for ideas and, and people wanted to take that on board. But if I'd have gone in, I think, and uh, started joining in the training sessions, which I think some coaches do, uh, if they'd have gone, gone in trading off the old war stories, which some coaches do, I think I... Um, Maybe wouldn't have had um, the, the the rapport with the players that that I think we you know we've got now, um, and I don't join in. I just don't because for me, what purpose does that serve? I, you know, I, I I'll, I'll have a game of head tennis with the staff. I'll go on a run, and but I leave the playing side to the players. You know, my kind of playing days are done, um, and I don't really revert back to I'd have done this or I'd have done that in that situation because again. You know, in football, you know, a year's a long time, and you know, I've been out. I've not played for nearly three seasons now, so the games have moved immeasurably from from the game I left. And for me to go back and 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 revert and say, do this, do this, do this, I think would be kind of outdated. So I've yeah. always tried to maintain with our players um, a kind of coaching um, mindset about. Firstly, I was very, very fortunate in terms of without having an enormous amount of ability, I understood my own strengths and weaknesses uh, against players who were far, far ahead of me in terms of natural talent, natural ability. So, you know, when you think you're playing in the Premier League every week, you're playing against, you know, I was fortunate enough to play against pretty much every household name um, who's played centre midfield since, you know, the the turn of uh, the decade. And... You know, you learn, learn so much when you when you don't have um, some of the attributes that, that that they have, and you have to find a way to survive. So I, mm. I've always been dead. Well, I've always been really, really open with the players about my career, about how my worth ethic, and you know, Clint Hills on on the coaching staff with us, and Clint's very humble about you know we both played at at, at a high level, but without having the most ability. So, you know, we try to uh, compartmentalize uh, the stages of being a player to our players to say, look, if, if we can make it from, you know, academies into the Premier League and, and beyond, yeah, then, yeah. Then, then kind of anybody can. But it takes dedication. It takes, um, you know, a, a level of professionalism and purposeful practice. And if you continue to do that habitually, I believe you can, you know, start to mm. maximise your potential. I mean, we, we talk to our players all the time. So the message there that Georgia said, really, about that hard work and work ethic, yeah, well, we, 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 and who knows how far it can take you. You know, there's, there's, yeah, course, there's yeah. influential stories all around us. Look, sometimes you, you, you're working t- incredibly hard every hour God sends and you don't improve your plateau. And, and sometimes, you know, that's where you're at. For other people, you know, they, they push and push and push. And before you know it, they can open up um, 
you know, different levels of, of, of potential that's locked inside them. But until you really, really push yourself, uh, you don't know. So we try to encourage our lads firstly to do everything they possibly can to give themselves the maximum opportunity of that. And then secondly, as coaches, we try to encourage them, cajole them, kick them up the arse when they need it, um, arm, arm around the shoulder when they need it, in order to for them to fill their own um, their, mm. their own kind of career pathway. Um, it's no good me saying he's got X talent, he's capable of this, this and this. If the player who, who we're talking about doesn't want to uh, put the hours in that, that are necessary to become um, an elite yeah. level person. Yeah. Gary, just touching on that maximising potential, so and flipping back to Georgia for the question first, you mentioned, Joe, you mentioned strengths and weaknesses. So as you've moved into your coaching career, uh, Georgia, how have you gone about identifying what the gaps in your coaching knowledge are and how have you gone about filling those? So Georgia first and then we'll come back to Joey. Um, for me, obviously being in the sport helped with certain things, but it did make, uh, I found there was a period of time where my gym, not so much, not, not from a knowledge point of view, but a delivery um, point of view and getting so frustrated um, by the slightest little thing and really the only way to help with that was I was, was talking to the people and at first you know I didn't not so much an ego reason not want to talk to the people but you know I was trying to make a statement that I knew what I was doing and I'm really good at this and you know you can all trust me I know what I'm doing and so maybe that's potentially why I was a bit hesitant at first to ask for help but you know really using the coaches around you and there's coaches um, that are fairly new to the sport I've never even done the sport um, before that offer something completely different that I'll have overlooked because you know, I've, I've done the sport my entire life. Why would I think um, about the kind sort of thing? So just using the coaches around you and not being afraid to ask for help, which for quite a long time I was, um, and go to them with an issue. I was also quite afraid of um, having an idea and it being shot down. And I think, you know, in my head, it's a really, really great idea. Um, and I guess that's something that I'm still, I'm still working on. Um, but yeah, the main thing is using the coaches around you and using everyone. Everyone has different ways of doing things, and um, and I'm still certainly learning mine. Um, but the more I speak to people, the better it. Obviously, the more help I seem to get. And and who who have those people been? So there's a question from Chris Scott a while back around maybe a coach developer or a mentor or a, another coach. What are you for in people to support you? And and have you had to go looking for that or have uh, have you had good support that's just been in place? Uh, well, I was really fortunate actually that pretty much the exact month that I retired, um, I got offered a place onto the UK Performance Foundation course, which is where I got my mentor, Alan, um, Alan Rapley. And so from that, I was able to talk to someone that didn't know me. Um, and like I said, diving is a very, very small community. And with that comes the fear of anything you say, you know, will be spread like wildfire and you don't always want that and that does stop you from opening up um, and being completely honest about certain things, especially, you know, I don't like confrontation, I don't like upsetting people. Um, so having someone that's completely removed from your own sport or your own club or your own environment really, really helps because um, you can just talk honestly and it's from someone that's not your own sport. Um, so you can just get a view as a coach rather than a diving coach. Because um, ultimately we all deliver things and we all want the same thing. doesn't matter what sport you're in. Um, but having someone that's that little bit more removed 
um, was a really, really big benefit to me. Thanks, George. And then back to Jerry. So how you, when you looked at your own coaching abilities, strengths and weaknesses you had, how have you gone about addressing those and who have you, who's been really supportive and who have you worked with this influence what you do now? Uh, I, I was very, very fortunate that at the back end of my playing career, when I got to about 30, I met a guy called Steve Black, who um, had been um, an elite level coach um, in, in multiple different disciplines, um, you know, all from running away MCA in, in Newcastle to working with um, Graham Henry and, and, and the Wales Rugby Union team, Denver Broncos. I mean, Johnny Wilkinson, he, I think he was famous for. Then he's come into football and he, he just has an, a, an enormous skill set for helping people uh, get out of their own way and, 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 and moving towards um, elite level performance or certainly fulfilling their potential. So I'd work with Blackie as a, as a player um, and found that the, the back end of my career, I started to find things in, in my game that I didn't think I was capable of. Um, I'd seen him work in a team. Um, space because we brought him into QPR to, to help the team uh, accumulated in Bobby Zamora's goal in the playoff final and I think without Blackie I don't think we'd have been capable of that due to the psychology of, of, of the playing group he helped change so for me he I, I, and I've you know over the years I haven't met every coach out there you can imagine but I was very very influenced by you know other sports uh, certainly when I think like Bill Parcells um Bill Walsh, um, Bill Belichick, um, and the list could go on and on and on. You know, Lombardi's from the, from the NFL, and I, I'm an avid sports fan. I mean, that's why I ended up getting a banner got. You can see from how many bets I had on multiple sports, not just on football. I just love competing. And for, for us as players, when you're trapped in a house, you know, you if you can't compete, then the next thing is to bet on it. You know, you, you, you would I play my kids on the PlayStation and, you know, you're having a couple of pounds on it with them and, and competition is at the heart of everything kind of I did to get where I am. And, and obviously that spilled over, which which ended up getting banned. And, and then I had time to take stock of all, you know, the good coaches and the bad coaches I'd played for, what was good and bad about them. In the last four or five years of my career, I, I kept a, a, a meticulous professional diary, which was just for me to analyse. So, it then gave me all the decisions of all the coaches I played for, some good, some bad. Obviously, relegation at QPR, promotion at Burnley, bit of a dispute at Rangers, back to Burnley, what was good and bad about about all the environments. And it just gave me what, what I felt was, firstly, good mentors, um, vital, and I'd had access to so, so many great coaches. I mean, um, you know, from Clive Woodward to... Uh, you know, the coaches that were working within football and, and I, I tried to learn and take as much uh, from those as I could. I started my coaching badges really, really early because I knew we wanted to have a family and I thought for me to be able to, to disappear in the summer for a prolonged period to get my coaching badges when I've got young children is going to be difficult. So I started my coaching journey at 28, even though, you know, at that point, I think I was the youngest on on the coaching courses, but nobody was really doing it at 28 more the lads were you know were worried about switching off and, and recovering from the season uh but i knew i was going to have a family and wanted to go into a coaching space at a point in the future so we started to... planning then for many players yeah, yeah well, i wasn't really planning nick i mean i'm not i'm not a i'm not a meticulous planner and this is what will come i mean G georgia might be different to me i'm very much of 
I know I can do um, pretty much anything I set my mind to. So when you when you're given, you know, when you start out as a young kid and you say I'm going to play in the Premier League and I don't really give a shit what anyone else says, I'm going to do this. And everybody along the way, all over different parts of the journey, you know, some good, some bad, that tries to be influenced. And then you know you sit down at 24. I was 24. I, I wanted to play for England. I'd managed to do that. I wanted to play in the Premier League. I'd done that. I'd made my fa- family financially secure for for however long um, it needed to be. So at 24, I've kind of done everything that I set out to do. Like everything's achieved. So at that point, you know, you, you, you're in a limbo. And I, I, it, it coincides with actually not being in a great uh, mental space. But I was in a bit of a limbo for a, about 18 months where I didn't really know you know, what am I doing here? I'm a, I tried to push on into the England squad, but ran into Lampard, Gerrard, Michael Carrick, players who were ahead tough of me. Gig. So, yeah. Tough gig. Um, yeah. So it didn't really matter how hard I trained because Paul Scholes, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard are going to play central midfield for England. And, you know, I can run every hour that's available to me. And I don't think the ability is going to pop up to take me ahead of them boys. And, you know, that that's disheartening. And Georgia might be the same in terms of if you've got somebody ahead of you who's just better, uh, there's there's sometimes no amount of training that you can do and you have to be realistic and accept that okay you mightn't be able to compete in that space for for that you know there's two jerseys available to play central midfield for England it's, you know there's 60 odd million people in this country a, a lot mm-hmm. of them are competing um to to play for England um national team so for me it was a it was a realization of okay where am I going to go with this and then I, I'd started to delve into um, you know, the, the kind of coaching mindset. And I thought I mightn't be able to be, you know, the best footballer that this country's ever produced. But when I look around the coaching space, you know, it doesn't really have, you know, we, we, we're not blessed in this country with superb coaching dynasties, with, you know, super, super coaches. I mean, you know, the, we can probably count them on one hand, in, in, certainly in my sport, football, and it would be Sir Alex Ferguson, who for me wasn't a coach. He was a manager, he was a personality, he was a omnipotent character in the same mould as probably Bill Shankly at Liverpool. And and, and, and the Liverpool boot room is probably the last great coaching dynasty we had. You know, you, you, yeah, yeah. Out, of it, out of it spawned Joe Fagan, and mm. Bob Paisley. Um, but Fergie's dynasty hasn't really materialised. You know, all, all of his players have, have been inferior managers to him, which you would argue... Is, is naturally the greatest manager of my lifetime, in, in, certainly in, in, in the UK and certainly in, in, in Premier League football. But then surely if he's such a great coach, lots of other good coaches should come from him. Because you look at Bill Parcells, you get uh, Tom Coughlin, New York Giants, you get Bill Belichick, New York Giants, who'd all been part of his kind of ecosystem, his coaching dynasty, who then went on to be you know, great coaches yeah. in their own right. Um, and, and I think that's what hasn't been done in our game. And I look at that mm. and think, and, and I hear Georgia saying before, she wants her athletes that she works with to be um, much better than her. And I think if you're a, 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 a serious coach, clearly you want, I want all the players I work with to be better than what, what I was. Um, but mm. it's, 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 I think we've the duty of care to create better coaches. Now, I think better coaches are created from open, honest conversations. Um, I think the oh, more... And, and I was never brought into, really up until the, 
up until the back end of my career, I was never really part of any coaching discussion. It was like, this is the way we're playing on a Saturday night. And me being me, mm. I would always challenge managers. So I was quite fortunate. It, it, it did cost me probably uh, playing for certain clubs. It did po- possibly cost me in terms of what I was seen as a little bit disruptive. Um, but now when I look at it, I think I've been the youngest, up until Russell Martin, I think, getting a job this year when Tisdale lost his job. I was the youngest coach in, in all four divisions, um, you know, and that's without any coaching background. That's literally stop and playing, mm. having a huge interest, reading in it, speaking to people, asking questions, looking at what yeah, went yeah. before, where good and bad from all managers. And, and you just have to have the self-belief, the confidence in, in my mind to put yourself in mm. at the deep end because you will what? learn. You know, none of what? us know your, your coaching courses, your badges. They, they prepare you. It's like your driving test. They prepare you. They give yeah, you, yeah. you know, they give you certain things that you can utilize. But at the end of the day, I don't know whether George is the same as this. For some people, they can prepare superbly and get their day one, and in the first week, realize they're in over the head. For other people, they can just step into it and they go, "This is natural to me." And you know, the way they conduct themselves in terms of the way they speak to people. Um, it naturally leads to them being very, very uh, influential as coaches. From I wasn't fantastic. I had to, and I'm still refining um, the way I communicate. Um, you know, and 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 be, being a coach has helped me become, in in my mind, a better person because I've been forced to confront lots of things that I never ever thought about mm. as a player. Because as a player. It was about me and performance Saturday and playing against Patrick Vieira or Roy Keane or Paul Scholes or Steven Gerrard. And I have to get the job right because if I don't, I'm going to get my arse handed to me and 60, 70, 80,000 people are going to see it and it'll be written about in the papers and it'll be shown on Match of the Day and on Sky Sports. So I need to take care of business for me. In the coaching space, you have to worry about your whole group and you have to, you, you, be, you become a person who, who's in a role of service and you know I had to learn about depression I don't suffer from it but I've had players suffer from it I've had to learn about lots of issues about the human being that I would never ever um, think Mm. about because it doesn't affect me and it's honestly made me a more rounded person because if you can't do it then you can't if you can't help your players off the pitch I don't think you can help them on the pitch yeah yeah Joey, I'm going to pause you, um, mainly because there was, there was so much great stuff and great messages in there, I think, for, for people to reflect upon from, you know, Joe just talking about naming other coaches in different sports, in different continents, and reading different things. Um, and I think when we, when we last caught up, we were talking about Bill Walsh's score, score Takes Care of Itself book, and so understanding different coaches in different sports, the value of informal learning, the value of duty to care and mental health and understanding people. I mean, uh, if we, we, we just bottle that kind of 15 minutes of, of stuff and it's all the messages that exactly we would go, this is what coaching is. This is, this is the football bit for, for Joe and, and the X's and the O's is the, the easy bit, but it's all of that stuff that surrounds about relationships and how you work with different people in order to maximize their experiences that's crucial and 
Sorry to interrupt you. There's a great Blackie says this to me all the time, and and my short experience as a coach is, is true. And dealing with people, he says people don't care about what you know till they know how much you care. I think if you've got a coach and your athletes or your students, they know that you care deeply about them as people. I think the Absolutely. window to find improvement is is, yeah. is is there. You'll find a common ground, but you've got to care about them before you start in, in influencing technique or timing. Or I yeah. think they have to feel safe. Um, you know, they, George, I, George, I what do you make of time. all of that? Let's, let's see what Georgia makes of that because I mean I think there's some great parallels there. Yeah, absolutely. For me, um, and also the things that you know, the way that the, the definitely the things that I liked about the coaches that work with me, I've taken forward. But you know, there's a lot that you learn, and I'm not saying you have to be an athlete to be a coach. But what's helped me is you know the things that I didn't like as an athlete that I saw from coaches or how certain coaches made me feel has also shaped you know, the way I approach, approach coaching, the way that I go into it, and, you know, design, you know, I've still got a very, very long way to go. I'm very new to this, but it's, it definitely all contributes to the coach that in my head I want to become. Um, and I had very few coaches, and I, you know, I highly respect the coaches that I did have, um, but at the same time, there's, there's things that I certainly don't want to replicate moving forward as I start this career. How do you balance off then, sorry, Andy, how do you balance off the because you liked it, it was right for you versus something that you might not have liked, but actually was right for you or might be right for somebody else. How are you going to try and balance those two things? Um, I, now, I've, I've quite a deep thinker. So the things I potentially didn't like at the time um, that I think were to benefit me in the long run, I've, kind of, I've understood those and I've accepted those now. And now I can see the method behind why that was done. Um, and then ultimately, there's things which how it makes you feel um, as a person, and that's more what I've, you know, I've taken away. You, you coach this group of athletes that literally depend and rely on you more than what you probably realise if you're not from the sport yourself. You know, they hang on to your every word, and I only know that because of how I was as an athlete, and not so much, you know, the learnings, but the feelings that you had, and there's times where, you know, you felt pretty down and pretty low, and I don't want the people... Um, that I work with moving forward to feel like I felt at certain points. Uh, Georgia, Jerry mentioned using a reflective journal. Um, I was just really interested to hear, you know, how how you take some time to take stock of things. Obviously, it's been for both of you. It's quite a a short, probably quite an intense journey into into coaching now. How do you take a little bit of time, or how do you step back out of that? Who do how do you reflect? On what you're doing now and, and what you're going to do moving forwards. Um, that to me is probably one of my biggest work-ons um, and something that I am working with my mentor on. Um, for uh, when I first started it with you know a foot down on the pedal 100%, very, and I didn't really take much time to reflect. Um, and that's that's definitely something that I need to improve um, as a person and as a coach. Um, I am getting a little bit better of it. Um, I am a very very deep thinker and take things very, very much to heart, which you can't also do in this sport, um, in this career that I'm learning. Um, but yeah, I need to get better at reflecting. That's, you know, the coaching journal that, uh, the reflection journey that Joe, Joe said, you know, is definitely something that I need to be moving forward. And is that just from listening? So um, just trying to get the balance a little bit from listening to Jerry, is there anything that you'd want to ask him? Uh, so 
you know, the, the ref listening to what he's been saying, what, what was a question that would, you know, come into your mind around actually, um, that's something that connected with you, you'd like to find out a bit more about? Um, yeah, I have a question. So the coaches that you didn't mm -hmm. perhaps um, see ITI on with as you were an athlete, you know, moving forward now as a coach yourself um, in a professional capacity, how do you go about working alongside those who come into contact with them very often? How is the relationship with those coaches now? Uh, with with most of them, it, it was as it was left. Um, you know, the likes of uh, Mark Hughes, Neil Warnock, we definitely won't be on each other's uh, Christmas card lists. And I think we're, we're, we're both fine with that. I think we're all grown up enough to realise you don't have to get every, on with everybody else. And there's been other points where, I mean, I played for Kevin Keegan at Newcastle um, and at Man City. And I fell out with him really at Man City. And back at Newcastle, we kind of patched things up. And obviously I was a 20, 21, 22 year old at City. And then was a 27, 28 year old at at Newcastle so you know you'd matured a bit and you could see some of the faults you've made and I'm constantly you know I, I use the past as a reference point because it, it allows me to keep some semblance of, of the journey I've been on um, and I, I was I would have been um, a difficult person to deal with at, at certain ages for, for a coach for sure I must have been an absolute nightmare especially if you were a coach who was underprepared um, especially if you were a coach who was maybe not putting in the hours in that 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 we felt were or that, that I felt as a professional player that you should put in uh, as a bare minimum, and um, there was certainly some points that, in that where I think you know if I could go back and and adjust my behaviour, I, I definitely would, um, but you can't, so you have to keep moving forward in 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 the space that you believe right, and you know for. for as, as coaches, no, 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 no. you know, you, no, no. It, it, in my job, in my, you know, the reality for me is, and, and I don't know whether this diff, differs between uh, George uh, 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 and um, go, go my, my job, because if I don't, if I don't get re results, it doesn't matter how nice of a person I am, at some point I'm going to lose my job, you know, Mike Calvin's wrote his book, you know, Living on a Volcano, about football managers, and certainly in my short time as a manager, I've seen you know, 40, 50 people lose the jobs in, in, in our pyramid. And um, it's very, very uh, relentless in terms of if you don't get the required results, you know, you don't get enough time to implement your coaching philosophy or your coaching strategy. So people say to me all the time, what, you know, what, what can I take into coaching? I say, well, you better fucking win. You better start doing it quick, you know, because if you don't, you know, you don't get time to implement all these strategies that, that, that you have. And um, I think, you know, for me, if, if I was to work in a in a in a in a kind of athletic space, I always perceive it as you get a lot more time because you haven't got your results being um, examined every single time. You know, you compete. I mean, for us, it's once a week at least. Sometimes two and three times a week, where you know there's match reports, radio interviews, TV highlights, so on and so forth, where you're coaching. Um, on the training ground isn't being highlighted. It's just the examination that you've got at the end of the week, which is the match. And mm -hmm. you might be working on something, players' confidence, players' self-belief, but ultimately at the end, of, on a Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m., they're going to be exposed to the kind of lions and, it, and it's a sink or swim moment. And, you know, for, for Georgia she, or an Olympian, I, when I'd seen them work, you know, 
pretty much they were judged on on whatever cycle they were on, whether it be a European Championship or an Olympic cycle. And you know, you wouldn't see them on the TV, and then all of a sudden you'd see them on 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 the kind of big stage, and um, they'd sink or swim on that on those big stages. But they didn't have you know the intensity that that certain other sports had, and I think you can develop um, personalities and develop sports people quicker if you don't have um, outside pressure. And I suppose we've all got outside pressure, but um, you know I, I would have players coming in, and, and I won't name names, but you'd have players coming in and be affected by the match report that was written in the local paper on, on a Monday and. You know, I'm coming in trying to reflect and, and analyse the game, and I've got to deal with the psychological effect of him getting slaughtered on a fans forum or a radio phone in or a or a, yeah, or yeah. a, 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 a report. Um, and they were things I'd never ever, you know, you just don't, they don't teach you on your coaching courses. They're just life experience that you have to, um, you know, try to navigate, gate uh, young mm. people through. And it, it's, you know, as, as I said to you, there's no. There's no book you can read. You can you can spend all the time doing all these different things. And as coaches, I suppose we all come at it from a, an eclectic uh, mixture of, of influences. But but ultimately, when when you get in the hot seat, um, you know you, you sink or swim based on your decisions. I've got a great staff around me. They help me enormously. Sometimes I want to do things, and they talk me away from doing them. And it, it, they're usually right when they do that. And I think having a, a good team around you, you know, being able to delegate, uh, it's been massive for me, accepting that you don't know everything as the coach. And also it's okay mm. not to know everything. It's okay not to be the expert yeah, yeah. in every domain. Um, but we have a, a great understanding that, look, it's it's my job on the line as the head coach. So when we go out the coach's office and we've made a decision, everybody has to be on that page. And ultimately as the, as the league coach, I'll sink or swim based on, uh, the results and, and obviously, you know, a collection of all the small decisions that you make uh, throughout your tenure. And that's that kind of goes back to what Georgia said earlier on about, you know, you feel like you need to know everything because of the role that you're in. But the best thing that you can do is say that you don't know. And actually, you know, the work of Brené Brown talking about vulnerability and how you can kind of share to others that, you know, it's okay that you don't know everything, but you've got great people around you that will help you do that. And that's why I think it's been a fascinating conversation to hear, hear the kind of the different insights and, you know, the pressure that Georgia has of trying to, trying to develop young athletes that have got to peak once in four years versus the performance environment that you're in, Joe, where you've got to create athletes that can peak twice a week and, the different challenges that you have there must make it really fascinating. Um, we've got a couple of slides really just to kind of summarize, I think, a little bit about the content that we talked about today. Um, and, and firstly, Andy and I talked about this before, and we knew there was going to be so many questions and, and apologies for, for not getting to some of them. We tried to pick up a few along the way. Georgia's mum, I know that we missed your question in there, but um, you know, it's okay, she'll be all right. Um, so, we talked earlier on around identity, you know, so how do you prepare for that if you know it's coming, uh, that you're going to shift from being a, a player or an athlete into becoming a coach or in the role that you're in now, how might you help or support somebody else to go through that? Because you might be working in a pathway where, you know, like Joe experiences a younger player, somebody might leave a pathway or a talent system and Georgia might have to do it for some of the, the uh, young divers. You know, you're no longer part of a, player, uh, a program, so there's a, a shift in identity there. 
how to realign a purpose and what are people's perceptions of you. So we talked about some of those things around identity. On the next slide, we kind of touched on some of the pieces around practice um, and actually how, you know, you know, both the guys talked about that you, you've got to be patient with it. You can't be expecting to know everything the day you step into this coaching role. It's going to take time. Um, I remember Joe saying to me uh, about, you know, about your conversation with Jose Mourinho and how that, you know, he, he spent so long learning to be a coach. You spent that amount of time learning to be a player. And now you're going to try and take that experience on top of learning to be a coach as well. So it does take time before you learn your craft. Um, getting I, don't, I don't think you ever stop learning. I think the minute you yeah, stop learning, that you're done, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the mindset that we would certainly encourage coaches to have. And pedagogy, you know, we talked in there about the importance of understanding how people learn, what makes them tick, when you have to put an arm around them, when you can start to talk about technical information. And, and, and Joe talked about the importance of caring for different people. So lots around the practice there that's, that's crucial. And then we talked a little bit on some of our coaching behaviours as well on the next slide on here and the importance of relationships. Ultimately, they are the foundation to what good coaching is. The, the, the X's and the O's or your, your triple flips and your somersaults and all the kind of pipes and everything or just a running bomb in my case, maybe George, if that still counts as a diet. Uh, you know, that's the relationships is the part that underpins everything. We have to get that right, which is why we talk about great coaching being about people. The reality of the situations that you work within. Joe trying to put a team out to play twice a week and create the environment there where people are under pressure in lots of different ways. And Georgia helping young people on that pathway. But it's about you as a coach that's listening to these conversations, taking this and saying, right, well, what are the key things I can take what from, from Georgia and Joe have talked about and think about in my context? And that's the key part of reflection that you all need to do. How do I make sense of this in my world? One of the, one of the simple things that Joe said earlier, I don't play my practices. It annoys the heck out of me when I see coaches join in with practices. It's not about them anymore. Move on. If you want to play, go and join a bets team or a whatever, you know, but it, this is about their time. So how you kind of reflect on this, make sense of this is crucial for, you, for yourself. Andy, any other kind of thoughts on, on my kind of ramblings there? No, it was just uh, it's, it's linking on to the reflection and the context piece. Um, so what was really insightful was just to hear both Joey and Georgia. All of the conversation today has been them reflecting on what's gone on either in their own playing, performing journey and then applying that into, into what they're doing in coaching. They've been doing that in quite an informal informal way for quite some time by the sound of things and that's that's just as valuable and as useful as some of the coach education courses they've no doubt been on supported by other people coach developers and mentors so it's a combination of all those factors coming together and that will that will only help them to develop further and hopefully enable them to to progress on their coaching journeys Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.